This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Gerberi. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer at Summa Health and a member of the American Health Law Association Board. I'd like to welcome you to the first in a series of three podcasts on the important topic of trends and developments and director and officer liability profiles. This three-part podcast series is designed as a supplement to the popular 2022 series of podcasts, which explored basic governance issues affecting hospitals and health systems. In this new series, we plan on addressing three specific elements of the officer and director's liability profile. First, the subject of today's podcast, the basic concept of officer and director liability and related standards of care. Second, the parties with primary jurisdiction to challenge officer and director conduct. And lastly, new developments in officer and director liability matters, including the Delaware Chancery Court's recent decision in the McDonald Corporation stockholder derivative litigation. And as before, I'm joined by my colleague and our governance expert at HLA, Michael Peregrine of McDermott, Will & Emery, who's here to share some of his perspective with us on these important topics. Michael, thanks for joining me again. You bet, Rob. Delighted to be with you and our members. So, Michael, to start, I guess the overarching question is, why is there a need for us to have a discussion about director and officer liability in today's healthcare environment? Have we not gotten past these concerns? Well, you would think so, Rob, but I think there are two points we want to make here for our members. One is uh, director and officer liability in the healthcare industry is very rare. It's always been rare. It continues to be rare. But the second point is we're in a different environment now and one which uh, is is going to, is relevant to your question. We are asking so much more of our corporate directors in terms of their engagement and their commitment uh, to the organization. The responsibilities that they have are more significant. The tasks that they have are broader. The best practices that are being released are suggesting, again, more engagement by the board because it's better oversight. So I think in a situation where uh, we have the courts and legislatures and policy statements asking more for directors, it's logical to realize that the more involved directors get and are required to get, the more exposed they are um, uh, to uh, third parties questioning their performance. And I think that's the environment we find ourselves in that together with the fact that, uh, as you know, uh, in your position um, so well, uh, the stakes are so much higher. So the combination of greater engagement expectations and higher stakes, I think, is is combining to increase the liability profile of corporate officers and directors in our industry. Great. Thank you, Michael. So as we look at the basic standards of conduct upon which officers are, uh, and directors are generally held, how would you outline that uh, for folks interested in that question? Well, I, and I think we're, you know, we've kind of talked it in two levels, but at the, at the high level, what are we concerned about? We're concerned, I think, fundamentally of uh, uh, gross negligence and bad faith in the performance of our duty of care with respect to decision making and our duty of care with respect to oversight. Uh, we're also very concerned with respect to uh, similar instances of uh, gross negligence, bad faith to the extent they apply in our duty of loyalty. In particular, uh, the extent to which we uh, participate in conflict of interest transactions, 
Uh, and this is Rob, where we get involved to the to the uh, in the uh, lesser known aspects of the duty of loyalty relating to corporate opportunity and breach of confidentiality. Uh, it's a situation in which we also have to be aware of, uh, of the concept and the definition of what really is good faith as opposed to bad faith, because those are the, the real um, key factors here, the markers. And we also have to be mindful of, uh, of uh, essentially practicing towards the business judgment rule. Uh, when we're in situations that involve actual decisions by the board, uh, has, has governance staff set the board up to make a decision that should satisfy the business judgment rule. Those are the basic concepts that are uh, in application here. And going back to your first question about why is the need to look at these in the future, I think that there are more parties with skin in the game who actually care about how boards exercise their decisions. And we know from the decisions in Delaware and elsewhere that there's a, there, there's a very large universe of people who like to who are in a situation who are willing to second guess oversight decisions. Where was the board? That remains a popular question and it always will be, and especially as we struggle to evaluate what's a red flag and how do we respond to red flags. Great. So as we get more granular, what kind of circumstances are you seeing right now? that are driving uh, typical liability exposures for officers and directors? Well, let me answer your question, Ron, with a bit of a qualification. Again, I think we start from the premise that some type of liability action against an officer or director is extremely rare. That's that's the, the foundation from which we operate. Uh, and the burden is, is always going to be on the third party to, uh, to demonstrate that the directors acted in a manner apart from the standard of care. Uh, we, we want to be careful not to suggest that uh, the sky is falling here in terms of liability concerns. That notwithstanding, I think that there's the laundry list of, of actions that, uh, that could lead to allegations uh, of director liability. And I think we, we start with the obvious one, which would be uh, gross negligence or worse in the exercise of our duties and responsibilities under the duty of care. Um, you get into situations where uh, of inattentiveness of uh, a director really not being able to demonstrate that their action was based on reasonable belief that the decision they make was in the best interest of the organization. Uh, you see a situation of, of conscious disregard of conflicts of interest rules, uh, the failure to recuse or abstain from a, a transaction in which conflict of interest was present. Uh, I think the concept of the abdication of duty or neglect of duty, as opposed to just simply not paying attention in a particular matter, uh, is, uh, is an element of all this. Um, the excess benefit transactions that drive the tax issues under Section 4958 will always be a situation which attracts regulatory attention and third-party attention, any type of suggestion of financial impropriety, and that ties back into conflict of interest issues. Um, then I think we have a series of, of, of related issues that involve financial benefit, which will, will be at least yellow flags to a third party. Uh, the unauthorized use of corporate property, uh, I, I think there's a situation in your state right now where uh, there's been substantial investigation in a, in a regional health system about that. Uh, the uh, corporate opportunity or the unauthorized use of a corporate opportunity, uh, unfair comp or inappropriate competition with the organization, 
unlawful distributions. Um, most boards have avoided exposure to investment risk liability. I'm not sure, given some of the dramatic losses we've seen with the market over the last several years, if that is, uh, you know, if that is more uh, good luck as opposed to uh, a formal application of law enforcement by the attorney generals. In other words, have some hospital boards become lucky uh, in terms of not having uh, been exposed to liability for investment losses that uh, because simply the state AGs have been too busy to pursue those matters? I don't know, but I, I do worry about that. Um, I think there's also potential for uh, liability exposure in terms of mission creep where the board fails to monitor uh, the evolution of the organization's mission beyond what its articles of incorporation say. Uh, similarly, the uh, I think a, a, a under-recognized area of exposure is um, misappropriation of funds solicited for a particular purpose. Um, and then we have the, the favorite waste of assets. Uh, t again, a tough claim to sustain, uh, but sometimes uh, it's a situation where a transaction is so bad uh, or so poorly formed or such an incredible waste of money that it can sustain a waste claim. But ultimately, Rob, I think that the greatest area of exposure has been, as it always has been, is, is if, uh, just bad faith in the context of oversight, complete ignorance of what's going on, failure to inform oneself of, of the status of matters, uh, and again, serious inattentiveness uh, and a, a serious failure to be, make an informed decision. Those are always going to be the two key ones. Great, thank you. So, Michael, are we talking about monetary liability here? Or are you seeing other types of exposure? I'm I'm glad you asked that question. I should have thought about this before, Rob, because I I believe that we as health lawyers, in working with our boards and our senior management, um, in evaluating liability exposure, uh, the most important is, uh, issue at risk here is not monetary liability. I, I just could not faithfully say to you that there's a significant risk or, or there is a real trend in director liability for monetary exposure here. The great risk that I see arising from the kinds of issues we're talking about this morning is in reputational damage to the director. And I think that's a, a growing risk. Uh, being named in a newspaper story, being subject to a subpoena or other information request for the, from the attorney general, being subject to litigation from a third party or, uh, or, or books and records requests from a disgruntled director. Uh, the great concern, I think, and, and what we should probably practice to are the optics of a situation in which board members are subject to third party criticism. No one signs up for that. And I think in today's um, media situation, especially Rob with the new media, uh, the, the outside the old mainline publications, the new media where I think they shoot first and ask questions or confirm facts later, this is a real significant risk. And I wanna underscore that. Uh, we have seen, I think in a lot of the news stories over the last nine months that have been exceptionally critical of the hospital industry, um, a, a, a substantial variance between fact and fiction. Um, it's discouraging and we've seen individuals uh, named and criticized in these reports where it's very unfair. We're also seeing, I think, in a couple of situations in, in judicial opinions, um, 
uh, and, and allegations, for example, uh, antitrust authorities, a, will, a greater willingness to, to be critical of the, of the governing boards of organizations uh, in enforcement actions. So it's this broader world of reputational risk that I think is, this, is the significant uh, concern we have here and what, where uh, health lawyers can play an enormous role in pointing out when we do the risk profile analysis on a particular transaction, we're not worried so much that a director will be exposed to financial liability here, but we are worried about the potential that in this environment, uh, reputation may, may be placed at risk. The other uh, area of non-financial risk that I would point out, and it's kind of related, there are some states, including New York and others, who will use in their settlements with not-for-profit corporations and boards uh, the penalty that directors will not be allowed to serve on a not-for-profit board in that particular state in the future. Can you imagine the uh, the, the pain uh, of such a stain uh, in that situation? It's That's just awful. And I think the uh, state charity officials know with some degree of uh, experience that uh, in many cases, that provides greater mo uh, motivation for compliance than, than the risk of monetary damage, uh, because you can't indemnify against uh, damage to your reputation, Rob. So long-winded answer, but only because I believe this is the $64 question. Will I be subjected to having my reputation criticized for the actions I'm taking here? And I would agree with your comment, Michael. I think seeing our directors, they are more uh, interested in making sure they're fulfilling their community mission and protecting uh, the organization and not only their own reputations, but that of those that they serve. So, Michael, in this challenging environment, when officers and directors come to you and say, can you advise me on what kind of defenses or protections are available to me in this space? What type of counsel do you provide on that topic? Well, I think the number one response, uh, Rob, I would say, and we're, we're, of course, in an environment now where the Department of Justice uh, and their uh, ECCP guidelines and their uh, renewed commitment to corporate accountability and corporate fraud enforcement, uh, where, where, where the the meter on effective compliance programs is, is pointing uh, up, uh, I would say number one is the best protection for our officers and directors uh, is a, a clear discussion at the board level of what the risk, what an acceptable risk profile is for the organization generally and on individual transactions, uh, a clear vetting uh, of uh, compliance matters with respect to transactions and investments um, and supporting the board in its ability to make uh, informed, good faith, uh, disinterested decisions. In other words, uh, a commitment to effective decision-making, a commitment to effective oversight will always be the best defenses to any third-party liability exposure. Uh, and, and here's where our, where our health lawyer membership can play an enormous role. What you worry about is, and it always just, it drives me crazy uh, when we see business people rushing to get deals done because of artificial deadlines, uh, cutting corners on deals, uh, limiting the ability of the board to make informed decision-making, asking for streamlined decisions to hurry up and get something done. Those are always yellow, uh, I think, warning signs and, and are this are the uh, uh, foundation of problems later on. So that's, I think, the, the general answer to your question. More specifically, 
I think we can look to, uh, there's a universe of uh, uh, potential areas of defenses and protection that are available to board members that they should know about. Uh, we have in some states, specific uh, Delaware law like protection limit, lim, uh, liability limitations built into the statute, which are available to officer and, officers and directors under specific circumstances. So we ought to make be sure that, you know, the extent to which uh, we have uh, those available in our state and we have the necessary charter revisions uh, in our articles of incorporation to incorporate those. Uh, the extent to which we follow in conflicts of interest transactions, the specific, whether you call it safe harbors or rebuttable presumptions uh, of reasonableness in those that's usually provided in state law in that regard. Similarly, um, it's very important, I think, to have a clear understanding with the board on what corporate the corporate opportunities are of the organization, and then to, to remind the board that in most states, there is a safe harbor process for a board member to participate in a corporate opportunity transaction. No reason to fall into that trap. Um, I think uh, going back to my original comment on compliance, Rob, that, that another just absolute laid down defense is, is working with the uh, senior management and certainly the chief legal officer on a decision-making process that's designed to satisfy the business judgment rule. Uh, you can't lose by that. If, if we have, uh, if the organization's decision-making process is looser or truncated or unnecessary, uh, unnecessarily vague, we need to tighten that up. And again, uh, plan for as if we are going to need to apply the business judgment rule. That is, in a, from a procedural perspective, a tremendous a cultural board boredom cultural process that will yield good defensive results. And then, of course, we have the whole world of uh, indemnification, whether um, uh, in whatever form, whether it's mandatory or discretionary on behalf of the board. Those are discussions, Rob, that I think should be had, for example, periodically with the governance committee. So there's no misunderstanding about how indemnification is applied and in what situations, what are its limitations. What are the availability of advances from the organization for defense costs, the availability of uh, insure, DNO insurance and the limitations on that? Uh, those, I think, are critical nuts and bolts questions that the board should not have any question in terms of what's available to them and what's not. And then there are always the availability of affirmative defenses and the argument of good faith. But bottom line, I want to come back and reemphasize Nothing works like good practice. Nothing works like attention to compliance, risk mitigation and transaction. Nothing works like commitment to a, a decision-making process that satisfies the business judgment rule. And nothing works better than oversight based on engagement, commitment, and useful information to directors. So Michael, as we're navigating these unprecedented financial challenges in the healthcare space, one of the questions that I've heard posed by a lot of board members is related to your comment on the business judgment rule. How do I exercise the right duty of care? Some of the initiatives that management are putting in place have a more uh, elongated timeline for them to make an impact. So can they sit back and wait and meet their duty of care standards? Can they rely on management's assertions that these are the right affirmative steps to take? Do they need to bring a third party in front of the board to make sure uh, that they're meeting their their standards around the duty of care. How would you advise a board member that had those concerns? 
Well, I, I think, first of all, we want to make sure that any concerns on a global basis are appropriate. We don't want to have our directors gun shy. We don't want to have them uh, afraid of making informed risks. I think the best answer in these in, in circumstances, Rob, is to focus on the process. Have the, you know, like in any uh, sports activity, you focus on the fundamentals. You learn the basic blocking and tackling. You 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 run the bases well. Um, and you play the field well. In other words, again, focusing on a process of making decisions whereby the board is in a position to understand the rationale for the transaction, how it supports the mission, has the opportunity to directly or through a committee review the materials, understand the legal risks, talk to counsel about those risks, uh, and then again, make a vote based on, without conflict of interest, uh, satisfying the business judgment rule. Similarly, putting the board in a position where they get enough information on the compliance risks of the organization to be able to have their finger firmly on the pulse of the uh, operations of the company and uh, understand when they when recognize a yellow flag when they see it and act when they see a red flag. What's critical to all this? I think, Rob, to answer your question specifically, uh, it's incumbent upon having a relationship with senior management so that senior management understands the role of the board and the potential exposure of the board. Oftentimes in, in, in a C-suite situation, I think that's the missing link, that for, for, for whatever reason, management does not fully appreciate the expectations of the law on the board, and therefore they are uh, unintentionally insensitive to the, to the scope of information that is necessary for the board to take a decision or the scope of information that's necessary for the board to exercise proper oversight. So I think it's, that's again, that's the basic uh, blocking and tackling we need is an appreciation by the senior leadership team that the board is not trying to meddle in uh, management affairs necessarily. The board's trying to do its job and that there is, there is legal exposure to the board that's legitimate and sincere if they don't do it. So again, getting management to appreciate the real role of the board, I think is fundamental to mitigating board member liability in all respects. Michael, one of the other common questions I'm hearing asked is, with the large body of work in front of boards right now, if the board is delegated to different board committees, key issues like workforce, a strategy, like compliance, how much can a board member that's not on those committees rely on report outs at the board versus having to undertake any of their own uh, investigation to ensure the organization's meeting its obligations there? Rob, done right. Um, delegate delegation to committees uh, with board delegated powers uh, and is in a very effective way of distributing the workload. <clears throat> uh, it, it, the state's state law recognizes it. It's a it's a good system, uh, and it can be hard to screw up. So, in, in uh, you know, if you look at it when you write it up on the whiteboard, the board can reduce the burden on its own agenda by delegating certain matters to committees. With, with appropriate charters filled with members who have the time and the expertise and the judgment to make decisions on those. That's the way it's supposed to work and it should work that way. How do you screw that up? Um, the committees don't need them. Uh, the committees aren't, uh, are, aren't full, don't have enough members to satisfy the, their agendas. The, the committees don't have people who have the necessary expertise. 
Uh, the committees aren't staffed properly by the management team. They don't need enough. There are a number of ways, all dumb ways, to screw up the reliance process. But, but basically, uh, the ability of the board to rely on the advice of management, to rely on the advice and recommendations of uh, committees with board delegated powers, and to advise on the uh, on the advice of outside advisors are all legally recognized methods of reducing the board's workload and uh, and proper agenda management. And it's just dumb when we don't do that right. So, Michael, in conclusion for today, we always talk about risk along a continuum. As we think about how to quantify for board members that approach us on what is the risk that they really face operating in this space currently? How would you advise them on, on that topic? Rob, I would say the risk is greater than it was five years ago. Uh, and it has, and that's, again, as I said at the top of our discussion, that's a combination of the uh, increased focus of third parties in pursuing directors for exposure. It's part of the increased focus by the new media uh, and and how carefully or, or uncarefully it, it looks at the facts. It's part of the greater and much more pressure-packed board agenda. Uh, it's part of the law's much more increased expectation of director engagement. And it's a factor also of greater stakes on matters coming towards the board. All of those factors combine to say, the, the risk environment for officers and directors is much greater than it was five years ago, but you cannot make that statement without saying at the same time that the ability to mitigate those risks is still very much available to the board. It The board just has to have the opportunity and support to take advantage of all those mitigation risks. There, no, there is zero downside to doing so. And I think, again, the ultimate answer is you know, the general counsel in an organization is going to know this cold and, and to make sure that he or she has a voice in this, to make sure that the decision making and oversight processes are run appropriately. And again, it's the, it's the senior leadership team, it's the CEO, the COO and the CFO, especially understanding what's at stake for the board members. If we can overcome that hurdle, I think we're going to really be able to successfully mitigate uh director exposure uh, in the way it used to be. But ultimately right now, is there greater risk? Yes. Are there measures to mitigate that risk? Yes. Is it easy to do so? No. Great. Well, Michael, thank you once again for sharing your insights with our membership here at HLA. We appreciate your counsel and guidance on these important issues. Thanks, Rob. Always good to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.